Well, will you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew in Matthew chapter 25 today. Matthew chapter 25, we will be reading verses 1 through 13 together, and let me ask you to stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired and errant and infallible word. Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, I'm calling this the King's Bridesmaids. This is the word of God. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. If you are visiting with us today, we welcome you. And uh, it may seem odd to you, uh, this particular choice of uh, Scripture. You may have been expecting a sermon on the incarnation or the birth of Jesus, or perhaps the message of the angels to the shepherds. Um, But our regular practice here at Redemption is to simply preach chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the Bible. Sometimes that has me... Uh, preaching on the Lord's first coming at Easter time, and sometimes that has me preaching on the Lord's second coming at Christmas time. But there are good reasons for this, and there's some benefits to it. Uh, One one benefit, this is just an aside here, one benefit is that you never have to guess where I'm going to be next week. Uh, I'll I'll just be in the next portion of your Bible. Uh, Another benefit to that is that you never have to believe that I'm picking a passage of Scripture just to poke at you. Uh, The passage of Scripture that is in front of me is in God's providence, the passage of Scripture that He would have us to hear. Uh, And that is true today. Uh, But I think this is a particularly wonderful passage of Scripture to be reflecting on this day. Uh, Some of you will know the name Isaac Watts. Uh, Isaac Watts is perhaps the most celebrated hymn writer of all time, and for good reason. A few uh, 
thumbed your way through our present Psalter hymnal, you would find that it contains double the hymns and psalms written by Isaac Watts than any other author. Perhaps the most celebrated and popular hymn he ever wrote was his theological reflection on Psalm 98. It's a hymn that you know very, very well, although you do not know it as Psalm 98. You know it as joy to the world. You think of it as a Christmas hymn. But joy to the world was not originally composed as an Advent hymn. It was his reflection putting the words of the Old Testament into the words of the New Testament as he reflected on the coming of the Messiah, his first and second coming, from Psalm 98. Listen to some of the words, particularly verses 4 through 9. Make a joyful noise, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Joy to the world. For the Lord, He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. I think that's why many have recognized that joy to the world is not just about the incarnation, not just about the first coming. It is as much about the second coming of Christ. It is as much about the establishment of His eternal kingdom. It is a hymn about anticipation, and it is a hymn about preparation. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare to make him room and heaven and nature sing. And so in the spirit of joy to the world on this day, when we particularly reflect upon our Savior's first coming, upon His birth and incarnation, it's good that we should be looking to His second coming. After all, without the promise and hope of His second coming, The first coming is meaningless. And today we find ourselves reflecting on this passage, this passage which, like Isaac Watts' hymn, speaks of our need to anticipate the coming of our Lord and to prepare ourselves for the return of the King. In many ways, as we now find ourselves here in chapter 25, we are just continuing the very same themes that we found in chapter 24. In fact, chapter 25 is the same discourse of Jesus. Uh, We call it the Olivet Discourse because Jesus spoke these words from the Mount of Olives. And this parable of the ten virgins, or what we would in our vernacular call the ten bridesmaids, is the second of three parables that Jesus uses to illustrate the need to be ready for His coming because nobody knows the day or the hour. Uh, And remember that a parable, it's just a story, a story drawn from the stuff of everyday life that is endowed with a higher spiritual significance and meaning. And so as we think about this parable together and as we reflect on it, Uh, Let me give you four points to hang your thoughts on as we reflect and anticipate the coming of King Jesus. First, this parable teaches us about the need for personal readiness. The need for personal readiness. Uh, Secondly, this parable teaches us something about our personal responsibility before the Lord. 
A third, this parable teaches us something about the personal regret that those who are not ready will experience when the Lord comes. And then finally, this parable teaches us about the personal reception that the Lord will give to those who are ready for His coming. Readiness, responsibility, regret, and reception. Continuing His theme on the need for personal readiness, Jesus says in verses 1-7, through Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. When? Then. Right? Uh, The then here refers to that day. Jesus said concerning that day, nobody knows the day or the hour. That day is the day of Jesus coming. It's the day He's been talking about. This is what the kingdom of heaven will be like in that day. And what will it be like? It's going to be like a wedding day. It's going to be like a day when ten virgins took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Now, in order to understand uh, this parable, we need to understand something about the customs of Jewish weddings at this particular time. Uh, Jewish weddings were incredible celebrations. Uh, It it began as the, the families arranged for the marriage, and the fathers settled on a bride price, Uh, And when that price was agreed upon, the betrothed groom would begin to prepare a home for his future bride. Uh, He would go and prepare a place for her. That biblical language might sound familiar. And it was the groom's father, actually, who would ultimately determine when those preparations were complete and the young man uh, could go and retrieve his bride. Uh, We call this period uh, the period of betrothal. In fact, this is the exact uh, situation that Joseph and Mary were in when she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. They had already contractually uh, been betrothed to to one another. That's why this was a Judean scandal right? At least it appeared to be so. And that's why it took an angel coming to to Joseph and saying, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because the one who is conceived in her is is born of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And so, betrothal was a very serious arrangement. And, And during this time of preparation, as the groom was preparing a place for his bride, the bride was watching and waiting and anticipating the coming of her new husband. During this time, she was referred to as having been set apart, as having been bought with a price, more biblical language. Uh, And she would wear a veil during that time as a way of signaling to other would-be suitors uh, that she had already been betrothed. But then as that time of preparation was coming to an end, uh, and as the, the wedding day was drawing near, 
the unmarried uh, young maidens and friends of the bride and of the bridegroom would gather uh, to the bride's house. Uh, Here they're called virgins. We would call them bridesmaids. Uh, But they would come and they would celebrate with her and they would giddily uh, expect the coming of the groom. Part of that waiting, part of that ceremony, included being prepared with oil lamps, uh, literally torches in the Greek, uh, so that in the event uh, that the bridegroom actually came at night, the bridesmaids could still escort the happy couple to their new home at the father's house, to the celebration that was going to be there with a festival and a feast. That's the cultural sort of background behind this parable. The time is near. Uh, The bridesmaids have already gathered at the home of the bride with oil lamps in hand. But then Jesus says that five of these young ladies were foolish. And five of them were wise. Uh, Now the foolish ones were foolish because though they took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took with them flasks of oil with their lamps. Now why did some of the bridesmaids not bring oil with them? Obviously, an oil lamp is not very good without oil, is it? Did they just forget? Or was there some presumption on their part? Perhaps that the bridegroom was going to come during the day. And they weren't going to need the oil lamps. Or perhaps they believed that they could just presume upon the other bridesmaids, as in fact they do. In any case, the bridegroom is delayed. And with his delay, the bridesmaids all become drowsy and they all fall asleep. But at midnight, there's a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. The moment has finally come, but not when they expected. And then all of the virgins rose and they trimmed their lamps. Now, I I don't think it's too difficult to discern the significance and the basic meaning of this parable. Jesus is obviously styling himself as the bridegroom, the one who is awaiting the Father's signal to come and to gather His bride. No one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son of Man, but the Father only. The bridesmaids clearly stand for those who are watching and waiting for His coming. They are the church. They're those who are meant to be prepared, those who have been invited to the feast. Perhaps the question most frequently raised is, What is the significance of the oil? Some have interpreted it as good works or faithfulness. Others as various Christian virtues such as faith or love. Oil in the scriptures is often a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so I think most have have been right to see that whatever the oil represents particularly, it represents the spiritual graces that the Lord gives. For my part, I think we're probably better off not viewing it too narrowly, uh, but simply seeing it as the presence of true 
spiritual graces in the lives of God's people, those things that actually evidence a real relationship with Christ. Because clearly it is the oil that is the the thing that distinguishes those who are ready from those who are not. They're all invited to the wedding. It's not even whether they're staying awake or sleeping. They all fall asleep. It's not even the fact that they are carrying lamps. In fact, there's a very real sense in which all of these bridesmaids have an outward appearance of readiness, isn't there? If you looked at them from the outside, they all appear to be following the customs and to be ready for the coming of the bridegroom. And yet, there is something lacking. It it seems to me that the way this parable ends really helps us to interpret what Jesus is saying. Jesus says to the foolish virgins, I never knew you. We're going to come back to that statement in a moment, but I, I think the oil stands for all those inward graces that fuel a personal knowledge and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Something that goes beyond just the externals of attending church, of being baptized, of professing our faith. Now, please don't misunderstand me. All of those things are of the utmost importance and commanded by Christ. But they are important because they are outward expressions of what is meant to be an inward reality. It's not simply that you confess Jesus with your mouth. But it's also that in confessing Him with your mouth, you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There must be that union between the externals and the internal. Being ready to meet King Jesus requires more of us than going through the motions of knowing the right things to say. Having a lamp that is not burning will never give light. So it is with our lives. Beloved, our lives must be fueled by true faith and hope and love for Christ, by all of those personal graces that demonstrate that we actually have a relationship with the Lord, that we know Him and that we are known by Him and that we are ready to meet Him. And so in this parable, Jesus is teaching us something about that need for personal readiness to prepare to meet the Lord. But if it teaches us about personal readiness, it also teaches us about personal responsibility. We can see that in verses 8 through 9, where we read that the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Now, it, it may seem on the surface 
unkind, that these wise bridesmaids will not share their oil with the foolish. But this is actually not a parable about sharing. This is a parable about being ready. But I do think it's important to see that the response of the wise bridesmaids makes it clear that they are not being unloving and they are not unconcerned about the other bridesmaids. It's rather about their love and concern for the bride and the groom, isn't it? It is because they care about the groom. It is because they care that this day, this happy day, would not be ruined. After all, if they share their oil, there simply will not be enough to give light for the whole journey. The Bible teaches us plenty about sharing and its goodness. But it also teaches us that there are some things which cannot be shared. Inward saving graces cannot be shared as much as we may want that they could be. We cannot believe for others. We cannot love for others. We cannot obey for others. We cannot persevere for others. We cannot be prepared for others. Parents, we cannot believe for our children. We cannot love Christ for our children as much as we may want to and desire to. Spouses, you cannot Love and believe for your spouse, for your neighbors, for your friends. These spiritual graces are graces that God Himself must work in us personally. We are personally responsible for these things. At the end of the day, it is our responsibility to be ready and to cultivate that true faith and love for Christ. It is our responsibility to make sure that our lamps are filled with oil because, beloved, if we are not ready, and if we are not responsible, that day will be a day of deep personal regret. And that's the third thing we see here. You see it clearly in verses 10 through 13. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. There's an ominous ring to those words And the door was shut. It's grave and sobering. There's there's very much a finality about it. And it's immediately felt by the bridesmaids as they come banging on the door, as they stand outside, they, they hear the joy of the festivities going on inside. And they're saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And yet, it's too late. That time 
for taking personal responsibility has passed. And as the Lord answers through the door, He says, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. It's not the first time that Jesus has said those same words in this gospel. He said them in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And some will come and will say in that day, Lord, Lord. And he will say, I never knew you. What does Jesus mean when he says, I never knew you? What is he communicating? Obviously, the knowledge here is not reference to personal acquaintance with these people or personal knowledge of them. These would be the friends of the bridegroom and of the bride. I think rather this is saying something much deeper and much more personal than that. I think we actually have a very similar expression uh, in, in our common language. For example, when someone close to us commit some act of atrocity or betrayal, what would we say? We, we might say, I don't even know who you are. Now, that's not the kind of thing that you would say to someone that you didn't actually know. Right? That's the kind of thing that you say to someone that you feel you should know and who should know you. But because that act is such an act of betrayal, you say, I don't even know you. Imagine if a bride invited one of her best friends to be her bridesmaid and, you know, for the past year she'd been giddily telling her all about her plans and waiting for that joyous occasion. And then by all outward appearances, the friend seemed to be excited seemed to be dutiful. She went to, the, to the, the wedding shower. She attended the wedding rehearsal. She was there at the rehearsal dinner. But then on the actual day of the wedding, she's a no-show. And when the bride says to her, where are you? She says, well, I never actually picked up the dress. And so I, I, I just wasn't ready And then by the time they opened, I couldn't get there. You've had a year. This, I've been talking about this for forever. It's like I don't even know you. You were supposed to be my friend. I think that's something of the sense of what Jesus means when he says, I do not know you. It's because there's not that bond of relationship. It's not because the Lord is cruel or calloused. It's because that relationship was treated with such disregard. This is the same Lord who says to Jerusalem, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you up as a hen gathers up her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. 
It's not that I was not willing. I've done everything. It's that you were unwilling. You have treated me with contempt. You knew I was coming. You had all this time to be prepared. And because of their lack of preparation, they will be overwhelmed by this deep personal regret. But if there is regret for those who are not ready, there will be a joyous personal reception for those who are. As sobering as this passage is, let us not run over too quickly the joy that awaits those who are ready. Verse 10 tells us, those who are ready went in with him to the marriage feast. The marriage feast is, of course, a picture of the joy of the consummation. It's one of the principal biblical metaphors for the joy of the eternal kingdom of God. And such a fitting metaphor because that marriage feast is the celebration of relationship. So as sobering as this passage is, it must be balanced by our anticipation, our desire for the coming of Christ, for that day when He comes. And, and the wonder is that when that day arrives, we will find that we are gathered to Him not simply as the bridesmaids, but as the bride. That is the way the Bible goes on to fill out this biblical metaphor, isn't it? That the church is the very bride of Christ. And so the, the questions before us are questions we have already been reflecting on. Are we ready for the coming of Christ? Is there oil in our lamp? Do we have a true, personal relationship with the Lord? Do you know Him And are you known by Him? wonderful part of this is that the Lord is the very one who provides the oil. He is the one who gives the Spirit without measure. He gives to all who ask, liberally and without reproach. And so if you're sitting here and you're saying, I'm not ready. I know that I'm not right with the Lord. I don't have that relationship with the Lord. Go to the dealer while there's still time and say, give me oil. Work in me all those spiritual graces. Give me a love for you. Give me a desire for you. Change my heart. I trust that most of you here today are ready. But we can still more and better foster this relationship with Christ to know Him and love Him more and better. And and there are very simple ways to do that, aren't there? How, How do you grow in any relationship? If a young man finds a young lady attractive and he wants to get to know her and to see if that inward beauty of the heart actually matches the outward beauty... How is he going to discern that? At some point, he's going to have to go talk to her. He's going to have to have some conversation. He's going to have to spend time. He's going to have to listen to her. He's going to have to know what her desires are and her dreams are. The Bible 
uses that same kind of language for our relationship with the Lord. We should be those who are talking to Him. We call that prayer, right? We call that prayer as we, as we come to the Lord, as we tell Him and give expression to how beautiful we think He is, how wonderful, how marvelous. And even at the same time that we are extolling his, his wonder, we're confessing our sins. We're pleading for grace and mercy. And we're telling him about our own hopes and desires, our own cares and concerns, the things that are wearing us down. If you want your relationship with the Lord to burn bright, talk to him. It's really, you know, it begins there. It's so simple. God's people throughout history have been those who called upon the name of the Lord. Right? When, when you see the line of, of the serpent, they're, they're building cities for themselves and naming them after themselves, and they're the fathers, and, uh, and, and, and they're, they're involved in all kinds of husbandry, and, and the people of the seed of the woman are just calling upon the name of the Lord. Be people of prayer. Foster that relationship with Christ all throughout the day. Second, another way to foster that relationship with the Lord, listen to Him. Don't spend all the time talking yourself. Young men, take note for your future relationships with young ladies. Don't just talk. Listen. We need to listen to the Lord. And where do you hear His voice? Again, it's very simple. He speaks to us in His Word. That is where He speaks. We are to be people of His Word. If we want to foster our love and our knowledge of Christ, then we need to be people of His Word. That, at the most basic level, means reading our Bibles, right? Or listening to our Bibles. What a wonderful joy that we can listen to the Bible. It means being in church where you can hear the Word faithfully proclaimed. It means reflecting and memorizing the Word of God. These are ways that you cultivate your relationship. I, I remember when Marianne and I were dating, I would sign my letters, love always. And one time, I don't know why, I just signed it love. And my wife, because she poured over these letters, thought something's wrong. But she was careful. She was attentive. We should be attentive to God's Word. We should be people of the Word. We should talk to Him. We should listen to Him. And we should seek to please Him. We should find out the things that bring a smile to His face. The things that delight Him. Again, young men, take note. Find out the things that bring delight. And if that young lady or if that young man, if the things that delight them are not the things of the Lord, you've found out that that's not someone 
that you should pursue. If all they care about are the things of this world. So how do we find out the things that delight the Lord by being, again, in His Word, by talking, by listening, by hearing Him speak in His law and in His gospel? Uh, These are very basic duties, right? It's so simple. Very ordinary things. So ordinary, in fact, that we call them the ordinary means of grace. This is how you grow in your relationship with Christ. This is how you prepare for His coming. These are the means which God has given for you, the ordinary means to stockpile oil so that your lamp can persevere. Because we should be prepared for a delay. Even though we don't know the day or the hour, we know that sometimes the Lord delays. But it is not, as the Scripture says, we should not count His slowness in coming as anything but His patience. He is not slow to keep His promises. He's patient toward us. And so today, as we think and as we reflect on the first coming of our Savior, as we think about all that He has done for us, as we prepare our hearts by meditating on the Gospel, that message of good news that tells us all that Christ has done, not just in coming for us, but even going to prepare a place for us, right? We are in that betrothal period Paul says, I betrothed you to Christ as to one husband. That's that's where we find ourselves. Waiting, longing, anticipating. And as we do, let us hasten His coming with songs of joy and let us prepare our hearts. Amen? Amen. Uh, Let's uh, pray and then we'll sing together. Lord, as we reflect upon your coming. Lord, we thank you that you came for us. And we thank, that, thank you that you are coming again, that you have already betrothed us to yourself. But we long for that wedding supper of the Lamb. We long for that day when the church is decked out as the bride of Christ, uh, robed in garments of righteousness, the righteous deeds of the saints and the righteous deeds of their Savior. Lord, we pray that you would work in us that which is pleasing in your sight, Uh, Lord, we know that this oil comes from you, uh, and we would go to you and ask that you would give us an abundance of oil that our lights might burn bright for you, uh, that we might uh, be like a city even set on a hill that cannot be hidden. And so, Lord, we welcome your coming. We look and long for it with joy, uh, and we pray that we would prepare our hearts. And we say these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as the Lord delays, and as we anticipate that final wedding feast, the Lord, every Lord's Day, gives us a way to anticipate it. He gives us a foretaste of that final supper, of that final communion and union that we will have with Him in glory. And he gives us that in the Lord's Supper. And this meal both looks back to his first coming 
as he says, do this in remembrance of me, uh, because this is the blood of my new covenant that I'm making with you through my body and blood. But it also looks forward to that final day, uh, to that day in glory where he says, I'll not drink this cup again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so today we get this little foretaste of that final glorious feast. But the thing is, you have to eat and drink with faith, right? Uh, If you don't, then all you're going to find is this crusty little kind of not very good piece of bread and this little tiny glass of wine. What are these things in the eyes of the world? They're nothing. This is no feast. But to the eyes of faith, this is all of the benefits that Christ can give. This is his promise to us. This is his giving himself to us. And so as we come to this meal today and we eat and drink with Christ, we feed upon him, we hear him say, this is my body given for you. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me and long for my coming. And so as we come to this meal today, let's come in that way. But there's also a warning that comes with this meal, and it's the warning that's actually pictured in the meal itself. The symbols of this meal are of a body torn to pieces and of blood poured out. And the warning is, the Bible says, that we should examine ourselves before we come as to our faith to feed upon Christ, whether we have this true relationship with Him, whether we are truly united to Him by faith, whether we are repentant of our sins and loving Him. Not that we're sinless, right? This is a meal for sinners. But that we have that relationship to Christ by faith. And if you do, if you belong to Christ, if you've professed your faith and you are a baptized member of His church in good standing, you are welcome to come and to participate in this meal and to have your faith encouraged and built up. But if those things are not true of you, let me just ask you to refrain from participating with us today. The Bible says we might eat and drink judgment to ourselves. And so uh, this same meal of blessing is also a meal of judgment. But for those who eat it and drink it in faith, we remember all of that judgment that is due us has been taken and satisfied. And now the Lord gives us these elements. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would use these elements as a means of grace to us. Lord, as we come now to your table, we thank you that you provide us with this meal even in the wilderness, that you refresh our souls along the way, that you encourage our hearts even in your delay to anticipate your coming. And Lord, we pray that this might be a means by which you stoke the flame of our hearts with the oil of your Holy Spirit with all of those graces of faith and hope and love and delight in you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would now set apart these ordinary elements for this sacred use, that as we receive them in faith, we might receive Christ himself and all of the blessings of the covenant of grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.